Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lohr, and today we're crossing over to Lausanne, Switzerland again to catch up with Andrew Ryan of FIBA Media. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks a lot, Marcus. Uh, great introduction. Really pleased to be joining you on the podcast today. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, looking forward to uh, spending a good hour here with you going into your career and, and all the stops you had along the way. And of course, um, we're going to spend a good time on FIBA and, and expect your role there in the FIBA media side of it, which of course is a joint venture with Perform or DAZN, sorry, um, you know, Perform is what they used to be called. And of course, a company you used to work with for as well. So, uh, so we're going to tap a bit into your background here as a lawyer and your, your career there. And then, of course, we'll touch on uh, some of the stops before you, where you're now. Uh, that was Perform as well as the IOC. So it should be some interesting uh, things to discuss. And, uh, of course, you're from Australia. And so, you know, Aussies are well known for being sports fans. So, And I'm assuming you were one as well. Why don't we go back a bit to those uh, the times of how you got you know, how sports affected you and uh, obviously then how you got into it uh, going through the, the early years there as a, as a, in your legal career. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I was actually um, born in, uh, born in, a, uh, born in Brisbane, but, uh, but spent most of my childhood uh, in a town called Redcliffe, which is, uh, which is just, just north of Brisbane. Um, probably not particularly well known uh, around the place up until this year in which the uh, the local rugby league team, the Redcliffe Dolphins, uh, finally made their long-awaited entry into the National Rugby League. So it's been quite a sight seeing the team that uh, that we used to trot onto the field after games and try to pot field goals on the old Dolphin Oval suddenly transform into a big NRL franchise that's, right. uh, that's doing okay. particularly well in its that's debut cool. season, um, surprisingly. So that, that's, been a, that's been a fantastic development this year. But uh, certainly I think... Probably like most of your guests, Marcus, uh, sports was was a huge part of my childhood, almost to the point of, of probably um, obsession, as my mum would have described it. Uh, I was um, fortunate in a lot of respects to grow up um, uh, with a twin brother who was also obsessed with sports and probably lived in one of the more competitive households um, you could imagine on that front. Um, we are uh, we were a single parent family for the for the most part and. Uh, you know, probably growing up in, in economically challenging circumstances, sport was just something that you could occupy your time with uh, without nearly needing a great deal of expenditure. Um, and so uh, we'd, be, we'd be out in the front yard playing all manner of, of whether or not it was, was cricket or tennis or basketball or rugby league, um, essentially whatever took our fancy at the time. And it was, it was a great time to, to grow up. Um, in Australia as a, as a young person as well, certainly in terms of, of sport being something that was very easily accessible. Uh, it, it, was, it wasn't something that, as I said, you needed a huge amount of cash to get involved in. We always found a way to to get involved in um, even, even sports like tennis and cricket, which when I moved to the UK, seen as very much, I guess, middle or upper class sports, but, but in Australia, very, very accessible games that are that are you know certainly at the time were played by by the vast majority of kids and i think that 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 accessibility to sport is something that i've sort of certainly taken into adulthood and certain things i've got involved in uh have, have very much reflected that that desire to make sure that kids of today have those same opportunities but i think in, in terms of being a lucky time in sports it was also just a great time in terms of the the development of the business of sport and i wouldn't have necessarily categorized it 
when I was a kid of having an interest in that business, but it was the time that, for instance, uh, you know, the, the Brisbane Bears came into the National uh, Australian Football Competition, the Brisbane Broncos came into the National Rugby League Competition, you know, mm. one one year later. Um, yeah, recent recently uh, had the sad news of Tina Turner passing, but she was a, she was a massive part of probably one of the greatest sports ad campaigns of the time at the uh, at the turn of the nineties um, for the uh, for the National Rugby League competition, and it, it felt like there was a, there was this big boom period in which there was so much possibility in that world of both domestic and international sport. And well, I think the Olympics, was, I guess, in 2000 in Sydney, right, uh, which I'm sure had some impact on you as well. Uh, I'm sure, assuming seeing the, the Olympics on, on the home turf. Yeah, certainly, certainly did. That was, I mean, to be honest, that was my first big trip away from uh, away from Brisbane, which sounds ridiculous now, given I feel like I travel almost every second week. But crossing the border into New South Wales and going down to Sydney for a couple of weeks for the Sydney 2000 experience was one of my all-time life memories and a hugely impactful moment, both in terms of personal and professional um, career. Later, having the uh, having the opportunity to work for the International Olympic Committee, uh, right. but that that sort of contributed to that time where it just felt like Australia was opening up to the world and we were so, we had suddenly gone from this place that was small in terms of relevance and inconsequential in world affairs into something where we're host you know we're hosting the biggest sporting event on the planet and it was phenomenal to be a part of that just as a spectator hmm. Yeah. Now, how, you know, so you, I think you, you, grad, you graduated with a sort of degree in law and psychology here, I could see. And, um, you know, and, and I believe all your, you know, the early jobs or early, early part of your career was, was in the in the legal space. So let's maybe touch on that a little bit, um, you know, what you were doing and any of those learnings you've taken into, of course, your, your you know, roles you're doing now. Yeah, so it was, um, I probably never intended to be a lawyer. To be honest, Mark. So I mean, I did didn't the undergraduate law course, but also, as you mentioned, combined it with psychology. And I think my first goal was probably more to become a sports psychologist. I, I picked okay. up a uh, an early copy of a, of a book called Sports Mind, which was written by by an, Austra uh, an Australian chap named Jeffrey Hodges that uh, that got me interested in that field. But ultimately, there was certainly some point at which. I decided that a, a legal career was maybe a little bit more predictable, a little bit more, um, uh, you know, opp opportunity creating, whether or not that was that was locally or ultimately overseas. And it, it felt like a sensible field to go into. And I was, I was lucky enough when I was still in Brisbane to get recruited to the firm, Melissa and Stephen Jakes, who were one of the big, uh, big national law firms at the time, got to work across variety of areas ended up in the in the corporate department there which was helpful just being a set of transferable skills uh that, that allowed me to transition to to london eventually but got to work with a sensational group of people out there had a really really great mentor in the form of a guy named john humphrey who, who was the deputy chair of the firm and spent probably as much time with us going to the uh, the gym and lifting weights to teach life lessons out rather than necessarily uh Doing direct work all the time, but it's certainly coming into coming into that environment, particularly coming from a background which was not necessarily a traditional one for people to end up in law firms or to end up in law school. Um, certainly, certainly when I was at law school, there weren't. A, it certainly felt like there weren't a huge amount of of state school graduates who were 
taking up places at you know University of Queensland Law School. So I guess whether or not it was that or my legal career or even the sports career sometimes, um, I've almost always felt like I've come to things as a, as a little bit of an outsider or certainly not someone who's come to things with pre-existing connections that I can rely on. And right. whether that is a, a good or a bad thing, certainly something which, which makes you very resourceful, makes you learn how to communicate effectively with people and get them on side. And I think that's something, whether or not through the legal career, otherwise that I've just tried to carry on as much as possible as I've gone through the last 20 or so years. Yeah. So how did you then end up in the in the industry? You know, obviously, as you said, you sort of described a bit what you were doing uh, there. You ended up also as a, at a radio station in the UK as a head of legal. And, and then I think you did another degree, uh, postgraduate courses here. Uh, so how did you land and perform? Um, how did that sort of that part of the journey here? Uh, yeah, a couple, a couple of segues. I guess I moved to London in 2006 and started work for an American corporate law firm there called O'Melveny. Uh, once again, great time, great people. Ended up doing some some quite sizable deals uh, where I was based in New York for for various periods of time, and which was a nice thing to tick off on the experience list. Um, sort of got to the point actually things were going very very well there, and then the uh, the, the Lehman Brothers collapse happened, uh, and then. Basically, by 2009, I was out of a job and managed to pick up one relatively quickly in a radio station called Absolute Radio, which had just rebranded from the old Virgin Radio and was on the precipice of trying to push into the, the streaming era of, okay. of radio, and it was really expansive in digital. And it was it was probably – I wouldn't don't know if I'd describe it as the most fun three years of my career, but almost the most – uh, most relaxed but slightly chaotic at the same time. We went through a period where we we were sued by Absolute Vodka for trademark infringement and spent 18 months trying to trying to deal with that and eventually oh, wow. settling literally on the uh, on the steps of, uh, of, a, of a UK court before that matter was due to be held. Uh, Absolute Radio got into the the sports commentary business, picking up uh, Premier League commentary rights for the first time. Okay. Right. Um, not like after I joined, so did that did that deal with uh, with the team there, and which was represented by David Cogan at the time for um, for the Premier League. So that was sort of the little entry into sports. Um, it's also probably the place where one of my most amusing memories from uh, from the sports world comes. Actually, they are uh, the team at Absolute Radio had been invested in by uh, by the Times of India group. Okay. Uh, who, uh, who, you know, sort of largely left them to their own devices. But we had had one chap in the office, Sharath Chandra, who was uh, who was their representative, and like myself, a massive, massive cricket fan. And I remember one day, probably about eight a.m. in the morning um, in uh, 2011, during the the ICC Cricket World Cup, I get a call from from Sharath saying, "Can you be in the office for an hour? And do you mind doing a live link up to uh, to India about the Cricket World Cup?" I said, okay, didn't really quite know what was going on and got into the office and he, he says to me, well, we've got, we've got this, uh, this station called Radio Mirchi, which is uh, an FM station that goes across the entire country uh, and they've, they've managed to lose connection to their guy in Australia who was supposed to be doing a, uh, a live cross from Sydney in advance of the India-Australia quarterfinal from the tournament. So can you do it instead? So I sat there for about five minutes on uh, on this particular morning in the middle of our office in Golden Square, London, trying to pretend that I was in Martin Place in Sydney, surrounded by hordes of people around about to watch 
the uh, the World Cup cricket final yeah, and have right. this incredibly bombastic DJ uh, asking me questions um, about the game, to which he, he eventually finished the interview and said, thank you, Andrew. And on the other side of this break, previewing the Indian side of things, we'll have Kapil Dev, who for... Cricket fans is uh, is is one of the uh, probably top three Indian players of all time. So the uh, the Australian fans got to listen to me, and the Indian fans got to listen to all time great. <laughs> but you you obviously you do a bit of commentary now, right? Though for the European Cricket League, I saw somewhere in your CV here. So you, I guess uh, that was the start of it, huh? <laughs> Uh, the start of it. Um, so we can we can touch on the European cricket commentary. The, probably probably the absolute start of it, and this is one of the most ridiculous coincidences uh, that I've had in my life. Is that um, it was back in 2006 after I after I just moved to London. Um, my brother was over there at the same time, and he was a former sports journalist and was trying to get back into that that gig uh, over in the UK. And he had managed to land a job doing Australian accent voiceover highlights for the BBC for the Ashes cricket series that was coming up um, that year. And he uh, he signed the contract and then turned around to them and said, uh, by the way, I've got a skiing holiday booked, so I won't be able to do the, uh, the Boxing Day test and the New Year's test, at which time they said to him, look, sorry, this isn't going to work. And at a desperate last bid, he said, well, my brother is here. He sounds the same as me. Can we get him in to do it? <laughs> so I had a desperate call from uh, from my brother Mark to say, look, can you come in and do overnight voiceover highlights for the BBC? I didn't have a reason to say no, so so I said yes uh, and then drove out to uh, the, the gorgeous surrounds of Feltham in the southwest London um, for, for two consecutive weeks, essentially, to watch the games throughout the night and then try to put together a five-minute highlights package uh, at the end of day's play at around six in the morning, then go home, go to the office and uh, and do a full day of work at O'Melveny. Um, where, where, I guess where the point of this story is that um, when I eventually interviewed with Perform um, back in 2012, I was trotting along um, a street that leads to their headquarters uh, which also is in Feltham, and I had not twigged that it was precisely the same company that uh, that I'd actually done the voiceover work with uh, back in 2006. It just happened no, to be the old it's... premium TV, uh, and so walked yes. straight into their, their same offices and just had this incredible sense of deja vu, but it at least meant that in my interview I could tell them that they would save the trouble of adding me to the payroll given that I was already on it. <laughs> I like it. Oh, nice. Well, there's some interesting coincidences there. Uh, stories. So let's let's dig a bit in, uh, deeper into your your time at, at Perform. Uh, you were there for four years. So uh, this is early to twelve to sixteen here uh, when it was still Perform, right? Uh, before it was uh, switched, I guess names or was partially sold later on. Um, you were the group head of legal there. Um, you know, if I remember, there are a couple of big deals obviously out there, uh, which people would remember. One is the WTA deal. Um, and then maybe later we touch, of course, on FIBA because that connects them to the next part of it. But, you know, talk us a bit through, you know, um, I recall that was one of the big deals at the time. Um, you know, I think, you know, perform was, you know, again, for some of the groups who don't know exactly what performed it, let's do that, touch on that a little bit too. But uh, anyone who knows perform, of course, knows for certain services they were doing, especially in the gaming space, right, and, and what they were providing there. But it wasn't really well known necessarily as a, let's call it agency who bought rights and then resold them, et cetera, right? That wasn't really the model. I think, you know, what IMG others or TSA were doing 
but that was one of the, I would, what I remember at least, one of the bigger deals, um, you know, with whatever, $500 million deal over 10 years, um, buying out the rights and then, of course, redistributing it. Uh, so talk us through because you were, I believe, right in the middle of that, right? Yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, uh, probably the same as you. When I when I interviewed with Perform, I had absolutely no idea who they were or what they did, and which I almost felt ashamed of, given that I was such a uh, such a person with a keen eye on the sports industry. But um, ultimately, it turned out to to be one of the best career decisions I could ever have made. Jumping into that organisation at that time, just almost being on the cusp of, of so many developing industries um, that were really, really pushing forward. I mean, it, was, it was a good time to come into the business. They they just acquired the uh, Goal.com site, basically okay. by usage, the, the biggest world, uh, biggest website, football website in the world. Uh, they'd recently actually done the original WTA tennis deal, which was to sell its, its global media rights for, uh, I think it was for four years. Uh, I was, um, you know, and involved a lot of production of, of, of premier events uh, going down to courts that had never been done before. But it, it was such an expansive business, and it was financially underpinned by the uh, the betting video business called Watch and Bet, um, yeah. primarily. Uh, but also, you know, they acquired I think 2011 Running Ball, the uh, the betting data, the, the ultra fast betting data company. Then brought in Opta, you know, a year and a half later. Mm. Uh, they had positions in direct consumer properties. Ended up buying Sporting News or the digital service of that. Yeah. Went into the, the the live streaming area with Live Sport. You know, I know you've had guys, you know, like John Gleish and the like on the podcast yeah, before yeah, who have gone yeah, sort of right into the background yeah. history. And, they're, they're probably much better equipped uh, to tell it. But I guess the, the, the key thing for me was just being on the cutting edge of all of these new deals, whether it was licensing betting data and video, whether it was creating the conditions for exclusive uh, data um, partnerships with the like of Football Data Co and the NBA. And uh, it was it was an extraordinary time to, to be involved in. A lot of the time you were just, as a, as a lawyer, pulling together bespoke agreements in which you're not not taking a guess, but you are essentially just starting things from scratch and just trying to use whatever background knowledge you had of the industry and typical contracting terms and the like to, to construct arrangements that mm. would work and would allow us to, to move forward in the commercial arena and bring in revenue as quickly as possible. So it was, it was an incredibly broad business to be involved in, a lot of really high-powered but incredibly positive and ambitious guys obviously you know simon denier and ollie slipper were the yeah. ceos back in the day uh, i got to work with john gleisha a lot and still still one of the one of the loveliest guys i've come across in the sports industry and still thankfully uh speak to him quite regularly um i got to work with yak Botanoli when he was at the probably his early stages of his career and obviously he went on to some fantastic things as the chief commercial for um for the Eventually, so it's just a, such an ambitious and fast-moving place, and I guess that that breadth of activity was what allowed it to sign or to or to, to put itself in position to sign some of those mega sports partnerships. You know, firstly, firstly with the WTA, which created WTA Media. I think that was at the time. I think it was the the largest women's sports deal that had ever been entered right. into. It was ten-year joint venture, which is still running now. Um, just, just a, a ginormous, uh, you know, thought for for women's tennis and and for uh, the perform business at that time to to make such an investment was was a huge statement. 
Uh, and then that what, was what, sorry, just to jump in for a second. What, what I recall uh, during those times uh, when you looked at what Perform was doing is they basically had an edge over many others in terms of really the additional revenue streams out of the betting, betting space, right? Um, where a traditional agency would just sell you know, on to other broadcasters and find the arbitrage in there in, in a sense. You know, it always appeared Perform had a little, had some extra firepower because it was able to monetize it that way. It, it, I mean, you know, you were inside and, and maybe you didn't look at it that way, but that's sort of, you know, for others, like, I guess on the outside in, it always appeared that way. Is, is that true or, or what was the model? Uh, I think undoubtedly true. And, and a lot of the, you know, some of these deals were constructed not, not solely to get a hold of the, of the betting rights, both, both video and data, but that was, that was a huge part. Of the, I mean, you know, perform at the time. You know, I think it was like back before the the delisting on the London London Stock Exchange. I was turning a, turning over a couple of million um, of, of revenue per year. You know, the I think the the cycle the last cycle of of betting data and video rights that I did. Um, I think that that brought in almost three hundred million over the space of three years. So you know, you're talking pretty significant amounts, and that yeah. was. Such a such a strong and high margin business for for perform the, and the ability to not only not only you know take the traditional media rights and do something useful with them offer production services that uh, that obviously help expand the quantity of content available but to be able to directly monetize that content through the betting market because of the fact that they owned these businesses like Watch and Bed and Running Ball that were were yeah. so successful and had such strong positions was, was yeah. huge. I got, a, I got a question to that one. So what I can again always recall is that you know Perform obviously had deals with I don't know a thousand betting platforms all over the world, right? Providing content and you know maybe in some cases setting up their streaming services and all God knows with all these other services which were there which they provided. What was was that where the money coming from, or was it actually some of their own services or own platforms in house which were generating it? I think certainly, certainly the what we what we called the content distribution business, which was uh, the the betting data and betting video, some sort of a, what, what we used to call media data, um, the the old ePlayer service, which was um, media video distribution platform. That that was where a very Substantial proportion of, mm. of performance revenue, and ultimately great contributor to its uh, its its profit line too, because it was a relatively high margin uh, operation. That, so, so absolutely yes, that that was. I think it's fair to say that was what drove the the growth of perform. I think it's also fair to say that the fact that it had established a track record in so many other areas, whether it was um, the services business in terms of running websites for uh, for whether it was football clubs or different international federations, or running OTT services for those for some of those same right. same clients, right. that that gave them a, a grounding and a reputation both to establish relationships with a lot of key rights holders, but also demonstrate that they were very trusted partners. And I think one thing that I always took away, uh, particularly from Simon, uh, from uh, working with him quite a deal, was that view that you really only have a limited number of top-tier rights holders in the world. And ultimately, you have to always be very, very fair-minded and very, very cognizant of that fact. And ultimately, uh, there's a number of people willing to provide them services, but there are only so many rights holders in the world. And so you have to take a, a very, very sensitive viewpoint when it comes to interactions with them. 
Yep, yep. Don't break, don't, don't uh, uh, burn your bridges. <laughs> um, that's probably what, uh, in short, what you're saying here. I would agree with that. Um, now let's uh, let's move along a bit here. Um, in terms of, you know, again, as you said, performance is probably, I'm sure, an incredible learning ground. Um, you know, just because the company was doing so many different things at the end of the day, it was then. I think it was sort of at the end of your part with them uh, where they were starting to look at the DAZN business, right? The setting up the streaming platform, which of course is now <laughs> back to where you are now. It says you're a joint partner there. And I, I, I was always a bit surprised that they ended up selling Perform part off because of you know the profitability of it. And you would think you want to keep that, but uh, you know maybe there were other reasons to it. But you know maybe just just touch a little bit on DAZN because it helps us obviously later when we come back to uh, your the FIBA part here, you know, um, what you were seeing already at the time. Yeah, it was certainly an interesting time in the, I wouldn't say the the project came out of the blue. It was obviously very well thought through. It was what, what always amazed me was how, how we, were able to keep it relatively well hidden and secret uh, for for such a lengthy period of time, and as you can imagine, to get services off the ground, particularly you know starting with uh, uh, the gas countries, Germany, Switzerland, and and Japan as well, mm-hmm. it required the acquisition of a lot of, or at least a critical mass of rights, and some of them from from really substantial rights holders as well. And obviously if with the with the desire to try to do that without you know essentially headlining to the to the market that there was suddenly going to be a new big competitor in the direct consumer streaming sports space uh, as well. So it was it was a project where uh, I'm not sure I contemplated at the start of it how big and all-encompassing of the business it, it would become. If certainly from our commercial legal team, it was something that we were we were trying to manage at the same time as manage a you know what was a growing, expanding, very very complex business with, as I said, interests across a lot of different verticals, but also operating in territories ultimately all across the world and some sure. easier to deal with than others. Um, so, and But the realisation soon came that some of those things that you'd, you'd made had quick decisions on around the, the structuring of, of companies for tax efficiency or where to put rights within the, the corporate structure or arrangements around trademarking names and name selection law. All that stuff was suddenly leading to something that was going to be quite a big bang um, for the industry, and mm. obviously it had a had a pretty dedicated team um, working on it, particularly for the, you know, the last twelve months um, before launch. But it was it was probably I, I don't regret leaving Perform at the time I did, which was probably about two weeks I think before the the German uh, service launched, right. but. I also would have liked it to be around for the first couple of years of the design you know, jumbo jet taking off because I think it would have been quite an incredible thing to be to be a part of and really to to experience you know, both the highs and the lows of, of what it's like to launch a direct consumer proposition of that size. Well, uh, you, you, so, you, you, when you moved, you, you obviously moved to an interesting place, um, and then you, you landed at the IOC here. Um, what you know was it headhunted, or or how did that sort of opportunity came about? Uh, 
I hate to use that the headhunted term because you sound like such a uh, such, such an arrogant human being for some reason. But um, I, you know, ultimately, I got, was contacted by a recruiter, and, and I think it's fair to say when I first uh, first saw the job description, it wasn't something that really interested me. I looked because of the fact that it was the International Olympic Committee, uh, and then thought, look, this is just not for me. And, and I think particularly because I was at that time in which. I was really looking to transition out of being a a lawyer. A lot of the later work that I'd done in Perform, whether it was helping the uh, the guys put together the Fever Media partnership in the first place, or uh, some of some of the initial advisory work on design and the like, was sort of really stepping more into a, a commercial advisor, a manager position, rather than necessarily pure pure legal work. More, and that was more business development, amazing. is it? Would you call it? Or? Uh, business development is probably probably a bit of a stretch, but 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 business strategy and okay. um, you know really pushing to at least helping make commercial decisions rather than just purely legal ones. Yeah. And and yeah, you know, it was great that I had the opportunity to do that with some some excellent people around me. And so that was, that. Was, Looking to move into, so it was actually that was probably the biggest call with taking the role at the uh, the IOC that it was a legal and business affairs one. But I also looked and thought this might be my only opportunity to to go and work within the organisation that is obviously the uh, you know the the uh, the home of the Olympic Games, and that was a property that going back to you know our earlier conversation about being part of Sydney two thousand. Getting to see Vancouver 2010, London 2012, all these things where that all of those moments were such a big part of my life, and, and I really wanted to experience that from the inside. Uh, I'd probably also gotten to the point where I'd been in London for for 10 years, and the concept of having a lifestyle change and, and just moving somewhere, different language, different environment, and the like was was probably. A, a, oh, an upside I see to the it as well. <laughs> yeah, sure. Switzerland and living in Lake Geneva is certainly not the worst place to to, to spend your time. So, so uh, let's, so that, let's that, talk that about it then. Uh, let's have a deep, a little deep dive into the world of IOC. There, you were there in almost three and a half years. Um, so you know, obviously, there's a couple of events around your time. I'm not sure um, you already had a chance to go to Rio. Uh, I think you just sort of joined slightly before that, I guess. But uh, you had uh, Pyeongchang, of course, two eighteen you were there and you know many people will remember that uh, the challenges of course that event also had and uh, you know again you were obviously in an interesting part of the organization there so tell us a bit about it what you were actually doing and uh, you know maybe some of the things you were involved in uh, well you're right Marcus in terms of timing that I think I turned up probably about a week and a half before the Rio Olympics started uh, mm-hmm. in 2016 so Unfortunately, I didn't get to go on site there, but did get to see firsthand the uh, the some of the less than happy campers who get left behind um, after when an Olympic Games is is taking place that are stuck back in the office uh, right. in in Lausanne. So it was a, it was an intriguing environment to see firsthand. But uh, yeah, the, those things where ultimately during an Olympic Games, particularly when you're not on the ground there, you're just taking and, and dealing with problems for the team that are that are out there. Yeah. Um, at the games as much as possible, but it was it was it was certainly a bit of a baptism of fire, just having to get your head around a lot of detail, um, a lot of ways of doing things. For anyone who's been involved at a commercial level with the Olympic Games, you know the the sponsorship arrangements and the permissions that broadcasters and commercial partners have are you know, quite unique to the Olympics. So it's not necessarily the easiest place where you can just transition your knowledge from 
other roles into there. But you know, ultimately, it was it was it was great fun, and you, you always think that it's it, it's an incredible thing to to be a part of. Um, sure. I guess the probably probably it was probably you know that that period went for obviously the, the couple of weeks, and then it was it was you know sort of full steam ahead after that, and, and probably on two fronts. Ultimately, we were pressing ahead with a lot of media rights, either either renewals or new tender processes. But also post Rio, or certainly at the end of the Rio Olympics, was the launch of the uh, the Olympic Channel, which was the big new okay. um, content strategy from uh, from the IOC uh, that was very much housed around you know direct uh, direct consumer proposition, very much big investment in original content, and I guess coming back to that that sort of uh, whether you call it a bit of an awkward need that, that you know it's not just the IAC has there's a lot of sports rights holders that have it of, of almost trying to be relevant 24 7 365 right. and that's you know that's a challenge uh where, you know whether you're the NBA the NFL or the Premier League let alone an event that takes place you know twice in a four-year span for 17 days uh at a time um so it was it was that that work with the Olympic Channel was probably partially what attracted me to it in the first place because I thought I could leverage some of the experience that came from no. perform. Uh, but it was also a, just a very very interesting process to see from uh, from an internal politics perspective, from seeing people who were very used to doing something in a in a standard way and in a way that had always worked for the IOC suddenly being confronted with having to deal with you know, essentially customers or users that you couldn't necessarily control or predict their behavior and it was it was certainly a, a period in which I I I think I think I went there expecting that I was going to to learn a lot and learn from a lot of people. I think after after a while, I got there and thought, actually, I can probably use the knowledge that I've got to push things forward here a little bit. And the the in, it, the advantage of coming from somewhere like Perform is that you you're you're really on, as I've said before, on the cusp of mm. new things that were happening. I'd seen yeah, what it looked like for virtually every major rights holder of what rights get carved out, how they tried to start to build up their own OTT propositions, right. how they were building and experiencing with experimenting with different types of product structures to entice as many people to, to connect with them as possible. Uh, and so it was, it was a great opportunity to, to now that, essentially I mean, look, I remember that whole Olympic Channel um, discussion at that time as well. Now, I have to admit, if I would now try to recollect where is it, I'm not even sure. Um, so maybe enlighten me. What, what, you know, what of it is, it, is there? What it, what, or where is it now? Uh, is it still called Olympic Channel? Did it sort of the, the idea actually came to fruition or did COVID kill it or what happened? Yeah, good, good question, Bucks. And I guess I can only give, I can give a slightly outsider's view of that. So it still does exist uh, in terms of the, if you go to olympics.com, um, there is a uh, there's a menu item called the Olympic Channel. There is still uh, still some original content that comes out of there. There's still some live broadcasts of events. So, for instance, the FIBA 3x3 World Cup is on there at the moment. I think yeah. there's a couple of things that, that have changed, and I guess one thing that I was always a massive massive proponent of, and and probably to not not helpful to my my likability around that uh, around the building at times was 
just the the lack of whether you call it viability or sensibility of having two very very separate platforms you know we would always have the old olympic.org service which was mm. not monumentally invested in as a consumer proposition but really really drove huge traffic around in and around the games unsurprisingly yeah. uh, and then the olympic channel existed as a as a completely separate service so i think people came to realize ultimately that you know, the the world of world of digital products provides infinite possibilities, which is both its upside and its downside, ultimately right. you know, trying to drive people to your own OTT service, particularly without having exclusive content or your own top tier content for the most part, is a really, really difficult thing to do. And I think um, there are a few of us who really focused on pushing the message of there is an opportunity here, both on a content and a commercial visibility front, but doing it in a coordinated fashion and particularly with a focus on a singular hub or a singular product was really the way forward and not just for the olympic channel but also trying to bring in the 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 different ocog services as well i think one another point that a few of us tried to frequently make was the the ioc had a tendency to structure their their digital products in a way which reflected their own departments to a certain extent and that message of the the outside world and your potential user base or your fan base doesn't look at you in the same way right. they look at you as the olympics or they look at you as london 2012 or paris 2024 and right. they're the sort of manifestations of what the olympics mean to to people mm. outside of the uh the bubble of lausanne and ultimately the you know, the, the ic is very thankfully taken taken a lot of steps um, in a positive direction on that front. Because, yeah. I mean, look, because this whole idea of an Olympic channel, one of my partners, uh, he launched one of those uh, years ago in, uh, in, a, in a new business uh, he did in the U.S. Uh, yesterday, yesterday, literally, we were on a call with a group in the U.S., which, again, we're launching something along a similar line. So the, the idea of aggregating a whole bunch of um, Sports, which on a low, on it by themselves as a standalone, are hard to monetize. Right, if you are certain Olympic sports, we all know have limited revenue opportunities uh, completely on their own. Um, and the idea was say, look, bring them all together. Right, if you have ten of them, twenty of them, thirty or fifty of them, whatever, um, you know, and it could work better. That I'm sure it was the old was the underlying idea of the Olympic Channel and the Olympic platform, as you said earlier, to create content in between. Um, those two blocks, right? The, 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 the two year cycles here between, you know, winter and summer. Um, but again, this is easier said than done, right? And I think that's probably where, you know, maybe that channel never really went to the direction or to some degree, I guess, you know, certain, the bigger federations like FIBA, where you're now, they go, look, we need to take care of our own, right? We, we don't want to just be sucked into this bigger picture there where we don't we lose our own identity what 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 do you see that as a, now between your current role now and what you were doing at the time with the IOC what's that challenge between you know yes you want to be part of the olympics and if you can make some more money with together with them and bring the rights in versus you know losing your own identity to some degree yeah i think it, i think you've hit the nail on the head in what you mentioned there before about the the concept of I mean, first of all the the olympics is or the olympic games is a phenomenal what i describe as a wrapper of of content i mean right. there there are a lot of sports that sit within the olympic movement that as as you've already mentioned don't necessarily have a huge amount of public traction um you know in between in between the games you can 
also argue that some of the, you know, some of them inherently are just less entertainment products than others. I mean, uh, you know, I won't name specific sports, but you <laughs> exactly. know, sports luck to work in the world of, of basketball, which is, you know, is, you know, by, from a from both an object and a subject, but it, it's a it's a phenomenal entertainment product to watch. Yeah. There are other sports that just because of what they are, that they don't translate as well to a television audience, and that doesn't make them any any lesser properties. Or as, you know, you hear some industry commentators essentially criticizing those sports for relying on Olympic handouts, but sure. ultimately that they they just have less capacity as a, as an entertainment and commercial product. And that but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't find ways to to expose them and to to get people excited about them. And the Olympics does that, you know, every every four years in both the winter and the summer. And I'm sure, you know, you yourself and many of my friends often describe the fact that you become infatuated with, you know, synchronized diving and table tennis or badminton for a period of two weeks, ultimately because it's got that Olympic wrapper um, around it. So so that concept of bringing together a whole heap of those sports is is not not you know a an inherently bad strategy or approach to start with. I think as you alluded to, the sports that do have a a strong commercial product already, whether that's us at FIBA, obviously you know, football is part of the games. FIFA is very, very secure in terms of its financial position. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the likes of you know World Athletics, World Aquatics, um, and the like, then they're not going to go and suddenly put globally exclusive top tier content on you know a service like the Olympic Channel or otherwise. Ultimately, because it's where they generate their money that allows them to act independently and and to do the work of promoting their sport. So mm. it's it's I guess it's one of those things that's great in theory, great great opportunity to to give a a broader audience to some of those sports that might not get the uh, the traction in terms of, of rights buyers in the media space. Uh, but also when when that is the content that you're putting on there, then you also have to accept that you're not going to attract the sort of monumental audiences that um, that I guess some people might have might have hoped as as part of that project. And I think, you know, once again, a lot of the stuff, whether it was, you know, creating original content or trying to come up with some more youth focused, uh, youth focused propositions and the like, all stuff that sports federations, whether those in the Olympics or international federations should be doing, it's probably just more a case of the the expectations of what could be achieved and the investment as against those, you know, meeting those expectations, um, which was which was probably where uh, the you know the the Olympic Channel suffered a little bit. Yeah. No, no, I agree, and, and I think we're now. That I want to let's move on to the world of FIBA media, uh, which obviously is then uh, coming right after your IOC experience um, again. Uh, you know, coming back a little bit, uh, and, and as I, as we said earlier already, the FIBA media is a joint venture between FIBA and the Zone. Uh, the me were there before as well. And I'm assuming uh, your knowledge of the zone, as well as I guess knowing the knowledge you you, you gathered in the IOC, uh, were all really helpful uh, for this new role here as the managing director in it. So first of all, let's explain a little bit what is FIBA Media, because I think there's also FIBA Marketing, which is another arm. So FIBA clearly created, uh, let's call it more commercial entities outside of the governing body, which controls you know the sport of basketball. Um, talk a bit about it, you know, what that means, how it was structured and who are the parties to it. And then, you know, we'll go into the more the role part of it. Sure. So I guess the, probably the first point to mention is that, that all of this commercial activity happened in line with what was a, a fairly big revolution in, in FIBA's international events. So they set up a, a proper 
qualifiers structure on the on the men's side first and foremost um in the for both the uh the world cup and the various continental championships so fifa is a little bit different to for instance um fifa in the respect that it, it holds the the commercial rights to all of the different continental events across right. the uh those four main um continental bodies uh and and so it gives it quite a quite a substantial amount of content to play with yeah. uh so fifa media is uh, first of all most it's very long-term joint venture it runs from 17 years, so it oh, wow. tipped off 2016 and goes through till 2033. Uh, so we're, we're currently in the second commercial cycle of four years for that, mm-hmm. uh, and it encompasses, I guess, all of the all of the commercialization and operation of basically broadcast production, um, obviously commercial sales for both your traditional media rights and the monetization of all the different forms of betting content, whether video or data, management of the OTT service and some certain things that we've also expanded into sort of uh, since the, the beginning of the venture. So we set, set up, um, uh, it was pre my time, although we've sort of maneuvered it since then, uh, of, a, of a digital marketing department that we, we can certainly touch on later that sort of directly tries to push um, both FIFA content uh, and broadcasters themselves to market our events in a more proactive way than, uh, than might otherwise be the case. Uh, but it's so it's long-term joint venture that's uh, between, is it directly a 50-50 between. Fifty-fifty, or what is the is there what is the official percentages if there is one out there? Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, I won't, I won't go into the details of, okay. of the split. Ultimately, okay. so there's I mean, it's a joint venture between FIBA okay. and Design. There's no there's no actual entity called FIBA Media. It's it's contractual joint venture. Uh, you know, it's you won't be surprised. Like there's there's obviously uh, you know financial guarantees that sit there for the rights holder. There's investment that comes on the design yeah. side in, in the form of production and staffing and yeah. uh, and the like. And obviously, Design obviously shares in in some of the upside on the assumption that that we uh, we keep doing our job. On the uh, the commercial front, which is happily the case at the moment, uh, I think where it where it became incredibly useful is that uh, it obviously provided certainty to FIBA in terms of having a a substantial partner and a well-funded one that came on board for such a long period of time. So it not only justified that that revolutionary change to the commercial, sorry, to the to the competition setup, but also. Uh, it, gave, it gave it the ability to to look look into the future and make investments, which were very much about improving the the property, whether on a media perspective or an event management perspective. Obviously, the media side is what we uh, generally focus on within FIBA Media. Uh, so it's uh, so it's I think it's safe to say it has been a success in sports federation parlance um, to date, and hopefully very much will continue to be. And I think it's it's helped position FIBA along with the the FIBA marketing joint venture that's with Infrad to to not only, I don't want to say professionalise its internal, they've always had incredibly capable people and many are still involved with these joint ventures, but to be able to bring on a much more substantial array of personnel across both the operations and the commercial um, activity. And I think there is, it's safe to say there is a, an outstanding crop of, of individuals that work across many fronts in there at the moment. So it's very, very well positioned at the moment let, and for the future. Sorry, Andrew, let me turn on for a second. Just to be clear, Ian, so you guys are all everything to do with content, right? That's the simple way to think of it, right? All the delivery of it, the production of it, the distribution of it, and the monetization of it, obviously. And then marketing, the Viva marketing arm is the other commercial rights, sponsorship, et cetera. Is that, is that the simplest way to think of it or? 
correct. Pretty yeah. pithy explanation there, Marcus. Oh, cool. No, no, there's sometimes it's just, you know, it's always easier to uh, to define it in that sort of sense because, again, that's quite unique too, right? I, I don't I don't know that many uh, other federations which have that clear sort of demarcation even, you know, you know, they, they might have a different sales team for this and that, of course, but that you have two clearly defined partnerships, you know, one within front and the other one here with the zone, I think is it's quite unique. And that's why I wanted to make sure people get it right, that how FIBA has structured that. And I think that's great. It's, you know, uh, hopefully, obviously, it, it, it's working on several levels. Uh, you already touched on it that, you know, FIBA did a whole bunch of other things. It actually used to be called FIBA World Championship. That's literally where uh, partially my career started, funny enough. Um, this was right after I did, finished the World Cup in 1994. I went to the World Championship. It was in uh, in uh, Toronto or uh, I think it was Canada. Now. I'm not sure it was just in Toronto, the games. And then I landed here in Asia in Hong Kong and I ran the commercial site of the ABC, which now you know it's called FIBA Asia now. But at that time it was the Asian Basketball Confederation and that's where I spent my first year running AGBC events here in Asia, which was a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> so I, I did, just, not, uh, did not know that, but, yeah. um, but, uh, but great, great link to basketball. You were lucky that the 1995 World Championships were, were a fantastic yeah. uh, event and had, had some mega stars at the time right, there. Right. So, so uh, this was very so lucky, man. That was my intro to, the, to, that, to, the, to your world, you, the world you're in now. And as I said, and then for you know, about a year and a half, I ran that uh, sort of part of it here in Asia, and it was it's just a lot of fun. It was, uh, you know, with the World Sport Group, uh, Shane was a Brian's group, uh, who brought me over here uh, before I obviously went on my own. But uh, yeah, it was just crazy. We had events in Japan, in Korea, Philippines, Malaysia. And that's within one year. And every single country I had never even been to. <laughs> so so it, was a, it was a true baptism of fire, a bit like what you already you know shared earlier with your career. Uh, you just get thrown into it, and you just either figure it out, and or you or you're gonna sink, right? Uh, and luckily, I did, I guess, to some degree. Uh, so we had a lot of fun years. So I know a little bit, a little bit about at least your the Asian part of your of your federation. You you are now involved in. So now coming back to you know your current role there as managing director. Um, you know what? How do you see this? Is it cutting deals, bring finding new revenue streams, or you know how would you sort of describe your roles and remits at the moment? I think probably the most important thing to know about FIBA media and FIBA marketing for, for that matter is that they're very much run as proper partnerships. Uh, it's, it's not a case of the commercial rights just being bought out by by either of those two parties. So we'll focus on design for, for FIBA media. They're, they're very much run as proper partnerships. And so actually the the I wouldn't say the vast majority, but certainly a big part of my job is making sure that uh, our FIBA FIBA STECO representatives and our design STECO representatives are kept very much up to date and certainly on board uh, with what we're trying to do, whether it's on the commercial sales front, whether it's investments in new content, investments in new promotional uh, initiatives or so, you know, some of the, the big steps we've taken with the OTT side of things with our mm-hmm. course of 1891 product, which launched um, over 12 months ago. So actually, you know, I don't want to say managing those individuals, but certainly, certainly keeping the communication lines open and making sure that everyone's comfortable with the direction of travel that we're taking is, is a big part of the job. Um, I, I think over and above that on the commercial sales side of things, uh, we have per- – 
team members from the uh, from the broadcast partnerships division within Design that's run by Aviv Galati, uh, who who look after a lot of the day to day sales and I guess broadcast partner um, interaction work. I will get involved in that when it comes, particularly when it comes to big tenders or mm. you know major major markets like the US that we're we're just uh, in the process of, of finalising arrangements for for mm. the World Cup. So there's if there's items which which have really particular strategic significance, then then certainly I'll get involved in those as well. Um, I think on on a, probably sounds trite to say, but but no no day is is similar. Uh, in the in the role, to be to be honest, you know some some of it is, you know, developing some of those those new concepts. You know, we, we've been lucky enough in the in the past couple of months to be working on the um the the FIBA uh, FIBA Global Ad campaign for the World Cup, which is something uh, we we developed in house at, at FIBA Media and have partnered with FIBA Marketing and FIBA Communications to really push that. Um, that along, uh, there's a bunch of new content uh, investments that we're making in and around the World Cup. So I try to work a lot with our, our production, our content teams, whether or not it's for for those initiatives or things that, that really represent us on screen in terms of our graphics packages or the like. And trying to, trying to come as much with that sort of thing, not, not from someone who has technical expertise in a lot of that work, but very much from someone who has just watched uh, probably an insane amount of sport over the years and being able to look at things through the prism of I am a fan or I am a consumer or what is it that I want from this particular product. And so that's what I always try to overlay uh, when I'm having those discussions. Let me, so let me, let's go there a little bit and, uh, and then hopefully you can share a little bit of, uh, again, not net detailed numbers, but uh, you know, just more the, the big picture side of it. Um, you know, every federation on the planet, even the biggest in the world, um, obviously, or, or even leaks in the world, right, is always going to be struggling with how much can I still rely on the old arbitrage game that a broadcaster or whoever it is, let's call it a media platform, will write me a big check and then figure out later how they make their money back versus we have to look at the direct-to-consumer approach, i.e. ODT, whatever you want to call it now, right? Uh, and I'm certain you guys are in the same space, right? Um, you're always looking at, okay, someone still gives us a nice check, then, of course, we'll take that and let them worry about it, how to monetize it, versus, you know, there's a market where there is not enough competition. Maybe, you know, basketball isn't isn't as strong as you'd like it to be, or it is a complete black market because, you know, no one cares, to so to speak, Right. Um, you know, how do you guys deal with that and what's the current remit or, or mixture, I guess, of revenue if you take a big global picture versus, uh, you know, what you're now going to be doing on your own with your own OTT and the direct-to-consumer approach? Yeah, it's a good question and, and certainly one that, that almost every rights holder in the world is, is facing. You've actually Absolutely. summarized pretty effectively, uh, I guess, the, the three buckets that we have. We've got a lot of territories where international basketball is is a massive product and that that's not an overstatement you know if a, the remember the first time that I went to to Vilnius in Lithuania and happened to be wearing a FIBA shirt and got stopped by multiple people in shops or on the streets to ask what I did because FIBA international sure. basketball is basically it. property that exists yep. in, in that market or certainly the most important to the population uh, and there's many other whether it's mm. whether it's the Balkans or you know it's an incredibly powerful product in China for instance and yep. certainly off the back of the 2019 World Cup obviously there are others where it's 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 a it's a good it's a nice to have it's a it's a great national team product and particularly where countries have a you know a, a, a star at the, the present time multiple stars it's a great thing and then there's others where 
as you as you say, we uh, we you know we're we're almost whether or not we're we're doing relatively simple deals to to get visibility for the content, or we're going our own way with the direct consumer service and their decisions to make. I think mm. in in summary, the the overwhelming amount of our revenue still comes from third party media deals, and there, I don't think there's any shame in in saying that. I mean the the you know the television broadcast world. Uh, for for sports, particularly those like ours, where it's not necessarily a week to week proposition, um, still offers uh, you know incredibly strong visibility, and we have we have a nice mix between I guess state or free to air commercial broadcasters and some very very strong um, specialist sports uh, operators who who take our content and deliver audiences, which which ultimately we could not deliver purely through our OTT service, irrespective of how we we operated it, and and that is that is something that we will continue you doing for the foreseeable future and and i think that is a very very sensible place to be whether or not just for the revenue side of things but also making right. sure that fever's sponsors uh get a get a huge amount of visibility as well i think the ott product uh, we you know certain certainly is does it generate some quite reasonable revenue yes we're very happy with the way it's it's rolling at the moment but i think it's also strategically a very important proposition for FIBA. So it's allowed us to invest in, uh, I guess, the creation of direct relationships slash utilization and collection of of consumer data to try to actually build up, um, you know, that ability to communicate and promote directly with with FIBA's fans, which is obviously something that most rights holders are very focused on uh, these days. It's also allowing us to try to capture a bigger segment of the broad of the basketball market because it's a product. Courtside 1891 is, is branded distinctly from FIBA very, very deliberately because it is not meant to be just a FIBA content proposition. It has live scores and stats from basically every elite basketball competition on the men's, women's and junior side across the planet. It has highlights content from leagues ranging from the the Japanese B League and we've carried their their live finals broadcast the last couple of weeks, Uh, the ACB in Spain, the... uh, the, the BBL in Britain. Uh, we, we have we have some NBA right. so content. So you are aggregating well. uh, other let's call it other folks uh, content as well. There, right? Got it. Yeah, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And what is the eighteen ninety one meeting? What, what's the is that when FIBA, when FIBA was established? Is that the where the the, the year comes from? Or what's uh, Good question. Not. Not quite when FIBA was established. It was when uh, James Naismith first uh, ah, right. launched a ball in a peach basket, basket to create the okay. yep. 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 So, so I guess you know we you know we spent a lot of time on the brand development uh, back in the day, but ultimately it, it gave us you know we had had the word courtside, which we thought was a great immediate allusion to to basketball, but also a, you know a, a term that that rolls off the tongue pretty nicely. And 1891 gave us a a really really unique designation sure. that helps with a lot of things, both in terms of recognizability and search engine optimization and the like. So um, yeah, so we so we were very happy. dot basketball. That's the actual website address. Is it correct? Correct. Correct. Uh, so people want to go check that out. Uh, interesting. So, so, and, and again, I think sort of a little bit to, to the conversation we had earlier on the IOC of always aggregating things. Of course, now that's exactly what you guys are doing, uh, and you just described it that you do have other basketballs. So it's not just FIBAR as itself and the events you guys are running, um, but you're bringing in some of your federations uh, and other stakeholders, I guess. So that's interesting. Yeah, I, th- I think I guess the difference is with the <clears throat> with the going back to that Olympic Channel conversation is that we have a very simple proposition in the fact that we are all things 
basketball. The, the challenge, the challenge that you know a server aggregation product like the Olympic Channel has is that you can say it's all yeah. things Olympic, but what does yeah. that really mean? Yeah. yeah. Whereas, whereas you know we are trying to position ourselves as a great starting point for when when you want basketball content, whether highlights or live scores and the like, then you come to courtside 1891, yeah. and it's a relatively simple proposition. Yeah, no, no, it makes sense, it makes sense. All right, let, let's touch on a couple of other things here. Um, before we get into the big one, the, the FIBA Basketball World Cup, which is obviously coming to my part of the world here, so I'd love to hear a little bit on that. But uh, let's talk about these regional championships, right? You have, and they have all slightly different names, right? You got Eurobasket, you got still the Asia Cup, America Cup, the Afro Basketball Cup. Um, you know, obviously these are the major championships in your region. And like you already said, uh, the difference to f your counterparts in football, um, who are, these, these are run, you know, domestically or, or, or regionally then by the, by the sub-federations there. Um, in this case, you guys own it, right? Or FIBA owns it or controls them and runs them. Um, and I remember that change years ago. I got noticed it's probably been at least 10 years, if not more, if I think back uh, when that sort of started, you know, when it was rebranded as, as I said, FIBA Asia, et cetera. Um, you know, how does that manifest itself in, in what you guys are doing here? So are you literally rolling up to all these events and, and running the whole show or how does that work with the local federations or the, the regional governing body, uh, you know, which still exists in some sense, right? Uh, yeah, I guess from, from our position, it's probably a little bit simpler. I guess it, it's you know, the our, our interactions with the the local organising committees are very much on the on the operational side for the most part, ensuring that we've got appropriate camera positions, ensuring that we have access to the venue with with enough time. Where, where I guess it, the matters come in a little bit more tricky is just around, obviously, most of the organising committees are very, very keen to have as much visibility their event as possible both yeah. prior to and during the uh, during the event. So uh, that, that sometimes melding in a difficult way with us having pre-sold rights for the next four years, for instance, um, you know that there's sometimes uh, discussions in which you know, ultimately the the FIBA commercial program uh, you know is what it is and it is run the way it is for very very good reasons. Um, but we obviously always try to work with those organising committees to <clears throat> whether or not collaborate with our broadcast partners. We'll see what we can do to to try to push the events as as much as possible. So uh, they as much as the it's probably more on the operational level that obviously the regional officers get far more involved in those than than of course the global events which are genuinely run out of FIBA headquarters there's right. there's also an organizing committee that exists for, for each of these events on a, on a local basis obviously for something like the the FIBA World Cup you know being held over over in Indonesia Japan and primarily also in the Philippines that there's mm. there's a massive organizing committees and a lot of people devoted to this you know for something that is uh you know one of the one of the continental events that there's you know a, a smaller smaller resource set that's attributed to it but they they are you know big events in their own right i mean in particular the men's Eurobasket is a a huge huge event in in European basketball and we we just came off the back of it last year with the with the finals being held in uh in Berlin 
and some of the countries were registering absurd audience figures of you know 50% of the television 60% of the available television audience of, of particular nights in in places like Serbia Slovenia Greece Lithuania and the like so it is it is a big big event it's obviously where Eurobasket has an advantage in Europe over the over the World Cup and particularly given the World Cups uh, had consecutive Asia events is just that time zone of we can we can get events into the prime time uh, broadcasts of, uh, of of each of those major basketball countries. Mm. How about the the uh, the league itself? Is that part of FIBA as well, or that is again completely separate, as in the the club uh, you know the club level? Yeah, different in every country, but most most of the uh, the the major domestic leagues operate sort of independently of the uh, of the the national federation, but often under the auspices or, or the sanction of that national federation as well. So, yeah, they're they're not not necessarily national federation. So everything you guys everything do, you're doing is is always focus on the national team, right? There's no club competition, or is there still is there some club basketball within the FIBA remit as well still? Uh, so certainly, so, so FIBA runs uh, a variety, or whether or not itself through its regional uh, offices, uh, a variety of club competitions like the, the Basketball Champions League, Basketball Champions League Americas, and, and a few others, or a number of others actually that fall under the, the club banner. That's not something that we look after at FIBA Media. We were involved in helping to set up the Basketball oh, Champions okay. League okay. Uh, back in the day, but but that hasn't been the case for, for a few years now. But obviously, we, we try to collaborate, whether in terms of, of working with similar parties partners or on production sets and the like with, with some of those competitions. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. All right, let's talk the the the, the World Cup here in Asia, uh, which obviously is quite a bit in, unique mix, right? Philippines, as you said, I think is sort of if I saw the the, the schedule correctly, it was you know was is sort of I think the core, right? And it's sort of a massive basketball market. So for them to have it, it's I think it's amazing. And and I you know I did one of my first events. So I love that uh, that it's going there. And then you have, you know, Indonesia, and I think there's a couple of uh, games there. And then you have Japan, which is, you know, you know, in terms of distance, everyone who knows a little distance across Asia, that isn't around the corner. Uh, that's a six, seven-hour flight easily, if not longer, from any one of those other two places. Um, how did that come about? Uh, you know, I get the Philippines-Indonesia mix. Uh, how did Japan end up in that mix there? Do you know a bit about that? Uh, so to, to be honest, it was uh, it was sort of before my time that uh, that I guess that uh, <clears throat> that was all concocted. I think it's it's interesting. The FIBA in a way is is very well set up to handle these these multiple hosts in some distance. So, for instance, EuroBasket for for quite a few additions uh, has been held and the men's Eurobasket I'm talking about has been held across you know, four group stage hosts then coming together for, for a final and you know the distances between those can be quite substantial we had we had Georgia uh, Tbilisi hosting hosting a group uh, last year and also um, Prague in the Czech Czech Republic, so um, we're quite used to operating across multiple organising committees and 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 also some pretty significant distances um, as well. I think I think it was a it was a great opportunity to first and foremost to take the World Cup to uh, the Philippines, which is as you alluded to, is just such a fanatical basketball wow. nation. Uh, I had, had the good fortune to be out in Manila for our World Cup draw uh, around a month ago and. It's so heartening to see 
kids walking around the streets in basketball singlets or jerseys rather than football jerseys, and that's yeah. something you don't necessarily see in all countries around the world. It's just first and foremost that is that is their major sport, uh, and they've Absolutely. they've actually got a, a great heritage in it. It's a religion um, there, like uh, cricket is in very India or so. football very is in many other countries. Absolutely. Yep. Yep, absolutely. I mean, we we only had to see the the sort of almost almost you know, fanatical obsession with guys like Dirk Nowitzki, the you know the 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 all time German great and former yeah. Dallas Mavericks um, NBA championship winner. You know, wherever we took him, there, there were hordes of people just looking to just get a quick quick glimpse of him. Um, <clears throat> so great great to be able to take it to Manila. Manila's where the uh, fifty two games out of the out of the ninety two will be held. But I think also a fantastic opportunity to. Uh, to to take the sport to, to Indonesia, where it's still um, still a, a developing property, but it has but FIBA has uh, a very very good structure there, great governmental support for that event, and I think it's that's that's a really really nice way to try to bring international basketball up to the uh, to a greater visibility point within that country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess with Japan, it feels like it's a long way away, but Okinawa is is very very far south in terms of the the Japanese islands, so actually it's 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 really not a huge amount of variety in the distances between, um, for instance, uh, Manila and Okinawa versus Manila and Jakarta. So uh, it's sure. Yeah, yeah, if you use Manila as the base, you're right. Um, you can go up, left, or right, uh, up or down. Uh, it's probably similar from Indonesia to, to Okinawa is a bit of a trip. But uh, yeah, if you kind of use, if you see Manila or, or the Philippines as your hub there. And you write on um, it kind of is, is equal terms. So, now that's yeah, and it, okay, that's interesting. I mean, like I said, I, I'm, you know, it, it's sort of interesting how they all got together. I know a bit about the Indonesian part. Uh, you know, Eric Toher is a good friend. He's obviously involved, and you know, he, at one point in time he owned a stake in, in a NBA team. Of course, well, people know him as the previous owner of Inter Milan, and he's a you know very senior minister there in the government and heavily involved in in sports. Uh, I know he's been involved there, and, and some of his team members there. So. Uh, I have no doubt. Uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully dropping by and having a look too, and and seeing uh, seeing the action there. The qualifying is still going on, or or is it all? Everyone is is done, and all the teams are confirmed who are coming. No, all 32 teams confirmed. We went through the last round of, of World Cup qualifiers uh, earlier this year, so ah, that's right. no, they're all. Uh, Already draw taking place, so we uh, we know what our schedule looks like. Uh, so it's genuinely fair from from a from a work perspective, but also from a basketball fan perspective. I'm so excited about that tournament starting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, is any so let, let's talk a little bit about uh, maybe technology since you were in the in the media part of it. Uh, is there anything new, different, uh, something you guys are from a production point of view, or you know something you know you are you taking some games into the metaverse, or you know is there anything creative you guys are doing there? Uh, not not quite at the metaverse uh, yet. Although amus- amusingly, I remember a, a couple of years ago when uh, during the the COVID period, we were working out where to try to do one of our um, one of our World Cup our World Cup qualifiers draw. Actually, and I made the the rather offhand remark of we should host it in Fortnite. We've got a few quizzical looks from uh, from people that it's almost it almost amuses me that 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 wouldn't seem like such an outlandish 
suggestion today. Um, I think a couple a couple of things today. I think where we're very the, when we make investments, a lot of it is around the uh, just producing to the highest standard possible. And so we've got a range of, of cameras, both some we've trialled in the past and some, some which are new. There, there's a there's a new C360 camera which we'll have built into the uh, the backboard structure support, which is an incredible piece of kit that allows us to 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 essentially focus in on certain parts of a uh, of, of what is a an expansive view of the court from that perspective and essentially rewind fast forward to to isolate particular players or particular moments that we're trying to focus on um, it's it's a great bit of kit we'll, we'll have our sort of typical spider cam uh, operating uh, we have a rail cam which has become very much a fever signature camera and was one which was first used for basketball by fever and really brings to to life, I guess, the enormity of, and athleticism of the human beings that are on the court because it sort of sits, you know, probably uh, three quarters of a meter off the uh, off the surface and and it really brings some some stunning images. Uh, we're also investing in what we're delivering is called a, a super feed, so um, actually trying to get a lot more behind the scenes content. Uh, so almost probably a li- looking a little bit more like a typical NBA broadcast of getting to see the the team arrivals on buses, going to the dressing rooms, uh, you know, pre-game to sort of really make the fans feel like they are sitting there in the both in the arena, but also getting the best view from uh, from behind the scenes as well. Uh, so the, most of those investments are really around that. We're looking at doing some. There's probably three or four statistical presentations which we've developed in-house and which are completely new and unique for the sport of basketball. And we, we went through a process probably around 18 to 24 months ago to to do a big sweep of what we saw were other top-tier sports and just think of what we could learn in terms of how to present data sets in a, in a really interesting way. And particularly keeping in mind that we've got to deliver a world feed. So we've got to do it in a very, very visual and simple way. Uh, but I think there's, as I said, there's three or four of those, which will be unleashed during the world cup, which are completely new for basketball. And I think will hopefully enable us to tell, tell a great story of each game. Yeah, no, cool, cool. I'm looking forward to that. Now, that, you mentioned NBA there just now, and then it's just, you know, when we talk on basketball in the world, of course, you know, the NBA is still the big, the big one, the big league out there, and, you know, with the biggest players in the world playing, and, you know, and, and, and Fever and NBA, I think, always had a, I guess, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, a, an interesting relationship there, right, over the years, and, and I'm sure it has changed over over the decades, and, you know, now, you know, a lot of times you do obviously see all the big names playing, both from an American point of view with, you know, bringing in their top players as well as, because now the NBA has, you know, the best players from around the world um, coming there and therefore, you know, their names are big and now, uh, but they're playing maybe in Greece or in, is that in, in other countries, Germany, et cetera, Spain. Um, you know, how do you guys work with them? And also, you know, particularly maybe for this upcoming World Cup, uh, what's your expectation there? Are you you know, have all the stars, uh, the NBA stars there, or what, what, is, what is it what you know? Probably a couple of different elements to that question. I think the sim- simple answer is actually FIBA and the NBA have a great relationship and, and quite a mutually beneficial one. We have, we have Mark Tatum, Deputy Commissioner, who sits on the executive board for FIBA. Mm-hmm. It's very much set up to try to 
complement what each other is doing. I mean, the, the NBA is a massive presence, not just in the world of basketball, but obviously the world of, of sport more generally, and then take up a lot of the the, um, the basketball interest, you know, for the for the period their season's running and sometimes thereafter. But from a, from a long line of of people in the the NBA and, and obviously going back to the David Stern era and certainly been continued with with Adam Silver, they they recognised not only the, the importance of international basketball but also international basketball being something that can really be a bit of a battering ram to develop new sets of fans uh, in territories where, who may not have another reason to, right. to tune into NBA games. So, I mean, international basketball has been a massive part of, of broadening the appeal of basketball as a sport. Uh, in terms of working with them, you know, we, we have great relationships with, as far as Fever Media goes with their with their content team. As I said, we work with them on um, exchanges of highlights content. They actually take a lot of our highlights clips and we'll post them over at NBA Social or the NBA Digital Products, which gives um, some extra exposure. It gives them uh, some great content to use during the down periods of their their year long um, season, or sorry, the in between their seasons. Uh, so very cooperative on that front, uh, and there'll probably be even be one or two things that we uh, we try to do with them in advance of the World Cup, uh, and particularly of of interest to the to the NBA is that there there will be a huge amount of NBA players who will be on the floor for the World Cup. Um, but we'll probably <clears throat> suspect we'll have the you know the the USA squad announced sort of in the in the coming month or or thereabouts. But actually, even outside of the USA squad, almost every one of the 32 teams has uh, you know has NBA representation. And you look at some of the squads like like France and Australia and yeah. Canada, and almost the entire roster is is NBA um, contracted right. players. So. Um, it's certainly, first and foremost, certainly will not be a, a cakewalk for the USA squad that goes out there. In fact, I suspect they probably won't even start favourites um, for, for the tournament. There, there is legitimately probably eight or nine teams that you would not be surprised at all to see them uh, see them in the final uh, in Manila in a few months' time. So, um, so no, great, great. No, I agree, and I think that's it's also, the... yeah. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just, I was just going to say, you know, a lot of people. In fact, in previous podcasts have been. People have asked me if you know whether actually having the NBA makes it makes it incredibly difficult for FIBA. I try to look at it the other way. You know, there's there's a lot of international federations that would love to have you know, a product in their sport that creates such almost whether whether you call it visibility or almost creates brand names out of individual players. Uh, you know, and we're fortunate with basketball that that. You know, there's probably eight to ten athletes in the NBA and who also participate in in FIBA basketball that are some of the most recognisable professional male athletes on the planet, and also on the on the women's side. There's there's the you know, particularly with the Team USA group, there are some of the some of the biggest names in women's sport that are participating in the WNBA and also part of the uh, part of the yes. FIBA international events. So we're you know, we're very very fortunate that we have a sport that has a you know not just with the NBA but a set of many other productive professional leagues that, that keep our contests in the spotlight year round. Yeah. And, 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 you know, again, I think that also, you know, when I watched uh, the, the, the FIBA World Championship or World Cups now over the years, 
Um, you know, it isn't a given anymore that the U.S. just rocks up and wins, right? Even though that's maybe what people still somewhat expect. Um, but like you rightly said, you know, you've got plenty of great teams now with superstar, their own superstars and, and or, you know, several superstars in these teams and, and they'll give them a good run for their money. So it's, uh, you know, maybe the expectation is always there somewhat. I'm sure from, especially from a U.S. point of view. Um, but so do others. Uh, and, and they're, uh, like you said, I'm sure it'll be again very competitive games and, and great to see. Um, you know all these nations competing there for each other. Now let's talk a bit about the the women's side of it. Um, again, you know I had recently uh, representatives from UEFA and, and FIFA on as well, um, and uh, you know we're always you know trying to see you know women's sports obviously is on the forefront or in the in, in a lot of people's mind now. You know you see all the activities. What is FIBA or, or also maybe your side of it, uh, what are you guys specifically doing on there? What, by the way, what, when, is, when is the next FIBA, uh, the, the, the Women's World Cup? Um, where is it and when is it? And so, well, I'll take that one first. So, uh, so the next Women's World Cup is in 2026. Uh, it has been uh, named uh, as Germany being being the host. Oh, right. Great, okay. great announcement. Uh, really, really uh, phenomenal uh, place to be able to take our, our major global women's competition to. I think going going back in history a little bit. So first of all, currently the women women in basketball is a strategic pillar of FIBA's activity, and I think I think everyone realizes that not only is it is it something that really does need its own investment and strategies for, but but also is a you know a major growth area for us commercially. And I think we we best saw that with. Uh, the Women's World Cup, which was uh, actually hosted uh, hosted down under last year in in Sydney, um, yeah. and it, it, you know, it, it, we 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 managed to negotiate um, led by led by FIBA Marketing, but supported by our broadcast relationship with ESPN, um, a, a very unique and and groundbreaking deal with Google to come on as a as a partner for right. for that event, um, which was you know great for both. Obviously, um, supporting Google's women in sports strategy, but also bringing such top tier sponsor to to specifically invest in women's international basketball, and I think that that certainly said something about how that how that property is positioned now. It's it's an interesting one, women's basketball, because it's, you know as much as it feels like everyone's only woken up to women's football, for instance, in the last last couple of years, women's basketball is being played at a at a very good level for many many years. I mean, the WNBA I think has been around for for something like 25 years. Mm. I remember back in, in 1993, Australia hosted the Women's World Championship and it, you know, most of the games were broadcast live into Australian households and it was, a, it was a phenomenal sports event to watch. So, so women's basketball has been, been a, a fantastic property to, to watch for a number of years. I think we probably, I don't want to say fallen into the trap, but certainly it's certainly the position now where, where everything has been packaged together and you know in a lot of territories you know there there is probably the easy option of, of leveraging you know the the men's men's content both to both to try to increase the value of the package but also to ensure broadcast exposure for for our women's events on a on a, a wide basis i think probably a little bit like our friends at FIFA and UEFA, there's, there's questions, uh, you know, that are, uh, that are live discussions internally of how to how do we do the best thing by these women's uh, competitions, um, you know, on a, on a regional basis and a global level, um, to to push them forward in terms of sponsorship, commercial value, in terms of getting the best exposure possible, and it's it's interesting to hear a lot of the discussions around this now and I'll you know, probably hear this more <clears throat> about football just because of the uh, some of the, the stuff around the, the Women's World Cup uh, which is taking place in Australia and New Zealand later this year. You know, 
have the you know the sellers of those rights having to make decisions about visibility versus commercial value and then a lot of the times there is a there is a trade-off um often there is a trade-off there and um, you know, those those decisions will have to continue to be made. Is, is it the best thing to just absolutely focus on broad reach and visibility uh, to, to try to continue to grow the uh, the fan base for, for that game? Or is it something where actually the, the uh, bringing in you know, substantial cash amounts is actually a, a better marker of the progress? And they're, they're, they're tough discussions to have, but interesting discussions to have. But ultimately... Uh, you know, for it's 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 extraordinary in the world world of sport that for an industry that is continually yearning to try to bring on uh, new fans, new customers, to try to seek new revenue revenue opportunities. That uh, you know, you've got 50, 50 odd percent of the population that for for a large period hasn't hasn't necessarily been thought of the same way or treated to the uh, to the same level as you have the uh, the men's properties. But I think. We're all very, very pleased that, uh, that that tide seems to be turning uh, and turning relatively quickly now. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. That, so, you know, we're, I'm always trying to make sure that we highlight that part because it's so easy to just talk about always the men's this, the men's that, because there are in many sports still, of course, the, the sort of the, the larger property. But, uh, yeah, so... Yeah, and actually, Marcus, probably, probably other, something other to mention. I guess we've tried to also... Recognise that it's it's not just about the the on court competition for on the women's side, but we've launched a couple of initiatives around, uh, particularly search for new female commentary talent with Fever, which which resulted in actually um uh, one uh, one young lady from Australia who got the opportunity to commentate with our team down in Sydney for the World Cup last year, uh for the for the upcoming Eurobasket we've got almost an exclusively female. Um, operation and productions team that are that are going out to manage that event. So, you know, there's there's things that e- even if we can't, you know, the when you're dealing with third parties, you know, you've obviously you know it takes two to tango on these things. But there are a lot of things we can always try to control ourselves and promote. And one of those things is representation within uh, our staff and personnel. And the second one is making sure that we've got uh, female voices for not just the female female events, but also the men's yeah. events. So it just becomes a normalised thing. Yeah. No, look, I, I, it's, it's nice to hear. And it's always, that's why we're having these conversations to share those things, what other, what people are doing or what federations or organizations are doing and, you know, inspire others on the back of it. And, you know, it's just looking it up. You're right. You were, the last women's walk up was in your part of the, your home, to, home uh, part of the world, home country uh, in Australia, uh, China uh, or US beat China in the final. So um, also interesting, you know, to see that there was a, a very different mix of, uh, I mean, the Americans were up there, but uh, China. And obviously, uh, getting to the final, I think beat, they beat uh, Australia in the semi. So um, yeah, it's good to see different mix, uh, different countries uh, getting involved. And on the back of it, it, it will keep growing the game, of course. So China is another market we all know is basketball is huge uh, in a general sense already, and uh, in a very important uh, part of the world, of course. So. Um, Andrew, we could probably keep going here, but uh, I think we also need to watch our time a little bit. And uh, so I want to thank you for for all those sharings, uh, giving us a good look into a your career, but also into the world of FIBA basketball uh, and what's happening around the world, especially from a media perspective. And so, uh, again, best of luck with the event, and maybe I'll see you there. And and otherwise, uh, I'll catch you somewhere else. <laughs>
Thanks a lot for the chat, Marcus. Really enjoyed it, and we'd absolutely love to to get to show you the FIBA World Cup uh, firsthand at any of the three venues. Yeah, I'd love to. We'll we'll work that out (laughs) after the call. So thank you for your time, and we'll talk soon. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Luer. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.